Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of If Women Were Meant to Fly, The Sky Would Be Pink. Episode 12. Would I? Should I? Could I? I'm Enid O'Toole. In this episode, I reflect on my years with Bristow's, as I'm encouraged to broaden my horizons. I find myself in the palace of the Emir of Carno, and I make the very difficult decision to leave Bristow Helicopters. I loved getting to the airport early, just before 6am. Sometimes I would take a walk airside just as operations were getting started for the day. The ramps were lit up as aircraft were being pulled out of the hangar and fuel was being tested. Sometimes I bumped into an engineer or two that I knew and we stopped to chat. The airport was surrounded by bush for the most part, underdeveloped in many places. I never did venture too close to the edge of the taxiway or runways for good reason. You never knew what was in there. On more than one occasion, I had sat in my aircraft in a queue, waiting my turn for takeoff clearance. Most of the checks up to that point had been done, and it was a few minutes' opportunity to take in everyone else around you. I was two aircraft back from an Okada Back 111, which is a two-engine jet with the engines at the rear of the aircraft. From the corner of my eye, I spot movement from the surrounding bush area, which is supposed to be secure and off-limits to anyone but airport personnel. Before you can grasp what is happening, four or five individuals run onto the taxiway and head for the Okada jet. They seem to know where to go, straight for the rear baggage door. The first the crew will know about it is when the warning annunciator light appears for them in the cockpit, indicating that the door is open. They seem to function like a well-oiled machine, roughly extracting the suitcases and bags from the hold, with two of them having jumped into the hold and the others receiving the stolen booty. Myself and my first officer watched in a sort of silent fascination before I clicked the transmit button to alert air traffic control to this activity. I told them that they needed to get security to the holding point for runway 19 left pretty quickly if they were to have any chance of catching the robbers. It was surreal watching them, like busy beetles stacking twigs and leaves on their backs as they scurried away to build their nests. In less than ten minutes, they had had their fill and also probably reckoned that they would be caught. So they left, closed the rear baggage door securely behind them, and ran back into the bush. It seemed to me that the stealth and confidence with which this was done pointed to someone who knew the aircraft, and had possibly, or did possibly, work in the industry. Airport security turned up about 15 minutes too late in their clapped-out colonial jeep left over from a bygone era. They charged into the bush, old-style rifles at the ready, 
intent on retrieving the hapless passenger's luggage, probably to no avail. I wonder what the crew would be saying to the passengers when it came time to explain why their baggage was no longer in the aircraft. If I know most Nigerians, they would probably gesticulate wildly along with abusing the airline staff and lamenting the state of the nation, and rightly so. Watching this take place from afar was bad enough, but most crews took it now as a regular occurrence if you were stuck in a queue at a busy time of day waiting to depart. Sometimes the perpetrators would appear out of the bush on motorbikes and seek out the most readily available aircraft, manoeuvring wildly in an attempt to discourage anyone from getting in their way. Soon it became such a common occurrence that airport security was beefed up and the most common entry points secured. When I told this story years later, people were horrified. Oh my God, they said, only in Africa. I would imagine that it probably wasn't only in Africa, but having been a first-hand witness to this brash act of theft, I did find it hilarious to recount, good or bad. I'm not sure what I would have done had they attempted to get into our baggage bays. A long-time friend and colleague in those days once told me that if the hapless thieves had ever chosen to head towards my aircraft, they would probably have been met with an irate female captain who had grabbed the machete from the aircraft emergency survival kit on her way down the cabin, and who had lowered the stairs, yelling obscenities to the marauding robbers stupid enough to pick on this aircraft, and who had just simply lost her shit. It would definitely have made the Lagos evening news. The luggage theft was encountered on one of our long trips up to the north of Nigeria with our first stop in Kano. The executives we were carrying were to visit the emir of Kano at his palace, and for some reason we were included in the entourage. Again, this was surreal because, as I would learn some hours later, the emir did not believe that there was a female captain in his city. Gidan Rumfa, sometimes called Gidan Saki, the emir's house, was constructed in the 15th century. It was set over 33 acres and was open plan with walls up to 15 feet high. The palace housed the emir and his wives, children and aides. I believe at the time we visited there were approximately 200 people in his private quarters. There were four houses allocated to his wives and we were given accommodation in one of them. The architecture in the gardens was stunning. Whether or not we would be meeting the emir himself was up in the air, something to do with tradition. A few hours after we had arrived and had been fed and watered, we were taken on a short tour of the grounds and it was an honour to see this 15th century architecture up close and personal. After a successful visit for our customers, we were heading back to Kano Airport to prepare for our return to Lagos. Once again, we were in the midst of the wet season and we would be navigating around huge tropical thunderstorms building in the heat of the afternoon. As we lifted off and climbed to our assigned altitude of 24,000 feet, it was into a clear blue sky, 
Not a cloud in sight or a hint of weather anywhere as we reached our final cruising altitude. My first officer returned to the cabin to make sure our passengers were fed and watered, whilst I called ahead for a Lagos weather update. It wasn't good. There were a number of reported thunderstorms in the vicinity with the associated wind, rain and low visibility. At around 150 miles north of Lagos, we began to see the edges of a number of ferocious-looking storms moving rapidly northwards. I could tell that today I was about to earn my salary. I decided to brief my co-pilot early, even though our descent profile would not begin for another 50 miles. As the sky began to darken with the approaching weather, I took the decision to descend early. We would have to punch through it, Getting around it would be nigh on impossible due to the width of the now mature thunderstorms. I reasoned from experience that if we had no other choice available, I would rather fight the storm at lower altitudes than up high, especially in this aircraft type. As the storm moved rapidly north, the airport was clearing and reporting better visibility and conditions, and that was what I wanted to hear before I had to make a decision to divert if necessary. Now. We had to get through the worst of it, to the other side. We requested descent and were cleared initially to 15,000 feet. At 90 miles, we entered thick cloud and started to witness lightning strikes as the first heavy drops of rain started to pound the windshield. Turbulence buffeted the airframe as we descended through the murkiness. I reached down to increase the brightness of the weather radar screen to see if I could trace a path of least resistance through the weather. Heavy rain ahead hid the worst of it, and it soon became a matter of just getting the aircraft through. Updrafts and downdrafts soon hit us with the ferociousness of an angry elephant. I had just enough time to try to reassure the passengers again that we would soon be through the worst of it, and to make sure that for their own safety they kept their seatbelts fastened. After that, it was all hands on deck as we were swallowed whole. I momentarily lost my grip on the control column as we were swept downwards in a descent in excess of 2,000 feet per minute. I reduced the power to idle as we hung on for dear life, knowing that we would momentarily be swept upwards again as we hit another updraft. As much as I wanted to reassure my passengers, I could not. I had my hands full, but I sympathised with how they must have felt. That bilious feeling as your stomach lurched in both directions, at the mercy of the aircraft's exaggerated and constant pitch and roll movements. Coupled with external glimpses through the cabin windows of darkening cloud punctuated with lightning, hoping that it would end quickly. Flight levels came and went, and we secured a descent to 2,000 feet from air traffic control. We were in good company as other aircraft in the vicinity struggled to climb, descend or maintain assigned altitudes. All were reporting moderate to severe turbulence, as the storm forced its way northwards, swallowing up hapless aircraft, looking for a way around it. Air traffic control worked diligently to make sure aircraft separation was on point that day, keeping us all out of each other's way. We finally punched through to maintain our 2,000-foot cleared altitude, the vast majority of the storm now above us. We were still 40 miles north of Lagos, and we would now use a tonne of fuel being down so low for so long. 
But as we had sufficient fuel calculated for this scenario, I would take that over being pulverised up higher. My co-pilot recalculated fuel and estimated time of arrival to relay to air traffic control as we turned back on course. I increased power and we very quickly picked up speed over the many little villages that dotted the landscape on the approach into Lagos. Little did I know that those little villages and my knowledge of them would play a vital role in getting me home safely on a future flight yet to happen. Back in the hangar, I went straight to my office to tackle a myriad of paperwork and scheduling that awaited me. There was also a message from my long-time best friend and colleague, who had since left Bristow's to take up a managing director's role with a company next door to us, Pan-African Airlines. Pan-African Airlines was a charter company whose head office was located in Miami. They had been established for a long time in Nigeria, operating a fleet of Bell 206 helicopters, supporting the oil company Chevron, in a place called Escravos, 120 miles east of Lagos, as well as several fixed-wing turboprops and business jets based in Lagos. In a recent conversation, it had been suggested that the company was planning to expand its operations, and in order to do so, it would need to hire additional flight crew. It had also been suggested, over a Chinese meal, one of many that we enjoyed as friends, that a good next step up in my career might be an opportunity to take over the Lagos fixed-wing operation as chief pilot. This came out of the blue and I stared at him, unable to comprehend what he had just suggested. I was flattered and amazed that this was an opportunity that was on the table. Pan-African needed an overhaul of its operations, and this would require, amongst other things, a complete reinvention of its fixed-wing business. I was intrigued and interested. I felt that I did have the strengths required to make this happen, as well as the experience now. I was entering uncharted territory, but this was the opportunity for that next step. No woman had held a chief pilot post in Nigeria. After all, women were just beginning to shatter the glass ceiling in this profession. The only thing holding me back was my strongly held belief in loyalty. Somehow, I had to balance my beliefs with my ambition and drive to forge a path in this profession in Africa as a woman and make history. We have reached the end of season two and what a journey it has been. I would like to thank everyone who has listened to this podcast for making it a labour of love for me. We still have more seasons to go and I'm looking forward to season three which will air mid-March. I hope you will all join me on this continuing journey. Thank you for listening. As always, your reviews and comments are very much appreciated. Thank you to Lucy Ashby for the editing of this episode. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please do so on our social media sites, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, or send us an email. Our email address is theskyispinkpilot at gmail.com or visit our website, www.skyispink.co.uk. Thank you, and goodbye.